Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Um, welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm talking to Marcus Ryder, who's one of the co-authors uh, with Lenny Henry of a new book called Access All Areas, The Diversity Manifesto for TV and Beyond. Um, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Dave. Good to be here. Um, this is not only a really sort of interesting um, book uh, with, with lots of both, you know, kind of critical reflections and really useful practical advice, but it's also an incredibly kind of timely uh, and important text given where we are in terms of various debates about um, what's going on in, in media industries in a variety of different ways. And, and the place to start, I think, with the book is to talk about the collaboration uh, between you and, and, and Lenny Henry. Um, and it'd be interesting to, to hear a bit about how that collaboration came about and what the kind of writing process was for both of you. Sure, the collaboration came about um, by accident. And so it was, so I first met Lenny about seven years ago, I think, seven, eight years ago. And I was just t- trying to get him on a, on a panel to talk about diversity. I was the chair of the World Television Society Diversity Committee at that point. He agreed to take part on, to be in the panel. But what was very interesting is that he took a lot of convincing because he hated pa- panels, specifically hated diversity panels, because they are just kind of group hugs where we all say, oh, it's woe is the world. It's terrible that more black people aren't involved in television or um, more disabled people. And everyone goes, yes, it's terrible. And, you know, and then we all go home and that's it. So he took some convincing, and the only way I could convince him is if we said we looked would look at solutions. And in this case, we looked at whether quotas would work. And it's something which um, myself and Lenny have mixed feelings about, quotas, but it's more about looking at solutions. And when we started being more solution-orientated, um, that's how the collaboration really worked. So for the last seven years... We've been going off to Parliament, we've been going to 10 Downing Street, we've been talking to Ofcom with solutions because people want solutions for, for the problems as opposed to just a talking shop. And then what happened is that for about the last three years, we're saying, well, we're meeting all these people, we're doing all these things, we really should document what we're doing, we really need to write a book. And so we keep talking about it and we kept talking about it and eventually just ran out of excuses. It's, it's as simple as that. And so that's when we decided to write the book. It was, we should have written it two years ago, three years ago. Um, we just ran out of excuses. And so here's the book now. <laughs> that's a pretty good, uh, good starting point for, uh, for a book, actually running, running out of excuses. The, the other thing I guess is uh, the kind of context. And, and this comes up uh, several times in the book, but it'd be good to hear about, um, I guess, how the kind of moment of not just Black Lives Matter in, in the States and, and more 
globally, but but also you, you know the kind of the uh, the immediacy that the need uh, for the book came about, and yeah, it'd be interesting to hear a bit about um, the context in, in which the book is um, is appearing. Okay, well, the book was commissioned in November 2019, so that was before the death of um, George Floyd, and so before the global um, Black Lives Matter protests. And so, obviously, a lot of people, after the book's been published, have talked about it in context of, of Black Lives Matter. But the sad reality is that almost any time when it was could have been published in the last couple of years, it would have been incredibly timely. That's, you know, so if we'd published it, um, you know, three three years ago, then it would have been incredibly timely with with the Me Too movement, because we talk about gender diversity a lot. If we'd published it four years ago, it would have been really timely with regards to the inauguration of Trump and seeing the end of um, Barack Obama's um, presidency. And in 2019, in November, when it was published, this was just as the BBC was backtracking um, and apologizing for wrongly finding against Naga Manchetti um, for calling one of President Trump's tweets a um, racist, was well, not calling the, calling the action racist. Um, and so the sad fact is that it's incredibly timely. If it had been somehow being rushed out the minute we'd got the commission, it would have been very timely. If it had been rushed out um, just a few months later when the BBC was embroiled in the N-word debacle, um, which it then had to apologise and attract, that would have been very timely. George Floyd, obviously, um, and Black Lives Matter, very timely. Me Too, a few years ago, Trump. It's, I'd be shocked if um, next year um, there isn't another thing which is really timely. What we eventually want to get to is we want to get to a place where the book isn't timely. So instead of people asking us, isn't it timely for this book? I really want to reach a period where people think, well, they couldn't publish access to all areas now. That's the point we eventually want to get to. Yeah, particularly, I think, in, in terms of what the book uh, does of laying out various um, kind of understandings of what the issues are, but focusing quite, you know, kind of heavily on, on what we might do to respond. And if those responses happen, I think you're right. There will be that moment where it's like, well, why do we need a book like Access All Areas? And maybe we'll, we'll do a bit on those um, two kind of halves or two perspectives in, in the book. And, and the place to, to start, I guess, is, is with some of the, the problems. And, and one thing the book opens with is a reflection on kind of the, the limits of just looking at award ceremonies. And, and I think um, we've seen um, over the last, say, say two years, and, and you mentioned, you know, the kind of longer standing um, context that the book is, is published in. But we've seen responses from like the Oscars, the BAFTAs, from various um, other award ceremonies, you know, trying to think through its panels, trying to make sure, um, you know, diversity might be highlighted. But actually... Um, there's limits to change if we're just looking at, um, you know, who is winning these big awards. And what are those? What's the kind of problem with the focus on award ceremonies? The problem with focusing on award ceremonies is equivalent 
to thinking that you can deal with COVID-19 with cough mixture. You know, you're not trying to address the cough, even if that is a symptom. The award ceremonies are a symptom of a far larger problem. You know, so what we say in the book is that it's like trying to address the um, problem of the Titanic hitting the iceberg by thinking that the iceberg is only the bit above the water. You know, the actual people going up to get the awards are a very small part of the industry. If you really want to look at the industry, you need to look at less at the people who are picking up the awards and you need to look at all the people who are sitting down because those are the people who are normally running the industry. Those are the media executives. Those are the commissioners. Those are the studio heads. They're all sitting there, but they're never getting up, right? And the vast majority of them are from non-diverse backgrounds. And so even if we were able to increase the diversity, which I'm sure we will to some degree, of the people who stand up and make the nice speeches at the podium, if the vast majority of the people greenlighting the projects, who are actually funding the projects, um, are still from the same background, socioeconomic background, are still of the same gender, are still of the same race, um, then we haven't solved the problem. All we've done is we've shifted the way the cosmetic appearance of the industry without actually changing the industry at all. It, it's interesting you mentioned the uh, the people sitting down because this um, brings us, I think, to the book's attempt to kind of redefine what we think about um, as a minority. And it'd be great um, to talk about um, how the book kind of conceives of white, straight, able-bodied men who are in the southeast of England who are a bit posh as actually um, a minority of the population um, and the way that we need to stop kind of talking about minorities. Um, so who are the kind of, this sounds a bit strange, but who are the kind of the real minority? Uh, you mentioned, you know, the, the audience sitting down and who are the real majority of, of the population? Well, I think the the problem is that we, if we see ourselves as a minority, you know, whoever you are, if you see yourself as a minority, then you often gratefully receive um, what the majority might decide to give you. And so we were after reframing the entire debate, that if you actually think about the who is a minority and who is a majority, we talk to the Office of National Statistics, and if we look at white, able-bodied, um, heterosexual men who are invariably thought of as quote-unquote, non-diverse, such a strange term, but as non-diverse, or we think of as being the majority, they make up, I think it's less than 30%, uh, of, I think it's just over 30% of the population. Right? If we then counter in um, regional diversity, so again, if we look at our TV screens, if we look at um, our politics, if we look at um, other people who actually hold power and run the country, they're invariably based in London. So if you look at white, able-bodied, heterosexual men based in London, it comes to 3.1% of the population. The 3.1% of the population is who we think of as the majority or non-diverse. Once you realise that, 
you realise that the whole debate needs to be turned on its head. We are not trying to get special rights for the minority. This is not identity politics or trying to get special dispensation for the few. What it is, is trying to make sure that the vast majority of people are properly reflected. They're properly reflected in television, in film, and throughout society. And once we have that framing, we're fighting for the majority. And that means that you're not fighting for diversity, funnily enough, you're fighting for fairness. And it's very hard to argue against fairness. So how do we do this um, fight for fairness? Um, I, I think one of the things that the book is great at is, is kind of saying, you know, we, we get that there have been these various things tried, but maybe they're a bit, you know, sort of um, limited or, or maybe they end up having kind of perverse consequences. So maybe I'll, I'll take a couple of them in turn. So what are the kind of limits of, um, of say, training programs if we want to be fighting for fairness? So, first of all, training is good, right? So, in terms of overall training, overall training, I think, is, is good for diversity. And there's been a few studies which have proven that. Because if you believe in training, what you believe in is that there are skills that can be taught and people can learn them, as opposed to the idea that some people are innately better at making films or some people are just innately better at uh, doing something than another group right so the idea of training is good right having said that the idea that women or disabled people or black people need special training specific training to bring them up to the standard of white able-bodied men or to bring them up to the standard of um, uh, the people with power. That is um, intrinsically blaming the victim. It's basically saying, well, disabled person, we would employ you, but you're just not good enough, so you just need a bit more training. Well, Asian person, we would employ you, but you're just not good enough. You just need a bit more training. So training that is targeted at the underrepresented group, right? Inadvertently, because it's often done with the best intentions, but inadvertently can end up blaming the victim for their own victimhood. And so we need to, so training, general training, yes, all in favor of that. Training which targets these underrepresented groups as if they are the problem, um, we need to possibly stop doing that. There's another couple of um, maybe you know problems or things that maybe aren't, aren't as effective as as people think. And one of these, I, I guess, is and this comes a bit later in the book around the kind of the limits of just focusing on focusing on statistics. Um, and you know, you mentioned using the ONS data to rethink what we mean by majorities and, and minorities. Um, but also, I, I think your discussion of, of stats related stuff. Um, kind of shows another side to the problem of just focusing on on award ceremony. So what's the kind of, I guess, the limits of focusing on, say, you know, what percentage of um, on-screen or off-screen talent is, uh, is black or is uh, working class or is a woman? Well, there's the phrase that what gets measured gets done, 
But the quality of that is that you then focus all your efforts just to shift that measurement, right? And what we're trying to do is that we're not just talking about shifting a statistic, because if your focus is, is on the statistic of trying to increase gender diversity, say, by to 50%, so it's 50% women, 50% men, right? what can invariably happen is that those stats are too easy to um, manipulate, you know, and people find ingenious ways, intentionally and unintentionally, to manipulate them. So I'll give a real quick example, right? If we're looking at female directors, first of all, female um, film directors are massively underrepresented. But even if you were to increase the number of female film directors, Right, and got them to 50%. As I have to stress, we're a long way from achieving that. But even yeah, if we right. were, right, what could, what could happen is that we could achieve that by women working on films which are poorly financed, um, films which don't get general release, and we would have reached the 50% target. Right? And so what we need to do is actually be people-focused. We've got to recognize that we're really dealing with people's lives. This isn't just um, statistics. This isn't just trying to um, achieve a, a random number. This is actually what the lack of diversity really does, is that this isn't a victimless crime, so to speak. There's talent, people that should have directed films. There are people who should be running corporations. There are people who are bitter and twisted because they haven't been able to um, achieve their full potential, right? And then it's no coincidence that you then have higher levels of mental illness in certain groups as compared to others. You know, we, what we're talking about is trying to make sure that people are able to fill their, fulfill their full potential. There are real casualties and there's real harm done um, and not just some abstract statistical harm. There's some real harm done when we don't address diversity. And we need to keep remembering that when we implement policies and we are um, campaigning to increase the level of diversity in not just television and media, but throughout society. I mean, the, the final element of, of being critical, and, and it's really interesting, you, you know, you've just been discussing there, you know, how policies are implemented to kind of encourage and um, develop support and, and institutionalise diversity. But you, you do, towards the end of the book, kind of say, we, we should actually think about, you know, whether we call it like how we define diversity, um, whether we're thinking in terms of what the sort of the, the overall aim is. Uh, and not only would it be good, you know, to, to kind of hear, I guess, your your kind of caution over, over the definitional uh, debates, but also it, I think, develops that point you just made about we need to think really kind of critically about what we actually want to achieve, you know, and um, I think that point you made about female directors, about, you know, well, what roles are they actually in, what access to resources they get, what kind of status that, that they have is crucial when we think about the limits of, of diversity as a term and, and the kind of the problem of getting a, a definition? I think the, the problem with diversity is that it can too 
easily be ill-defined. And so currently, for example, if you look at British broadcasters, they, if and when they do define diversity, they define it differently. You know, so ITV seems to have a different definition to BBC, which seems to have a diff- different definition to, to Channel 4. Um, and surprise, surprise, they mark their own homework and they always seem to achieve what they want to achieve. You know, that they, they always um, give themselves passing grades. Right? And so something is going slightly wrong where companies are setting their own homework, passing, and yet the level of diversity doesn't seem to be increasing throughout the industry. And so what we really need is we need a, a regulator who can actually define what we're trying to achieve, right? and then hold the broadcasters or hold companies, if not to account, at least to set a yardstick by which their policies can be measured. So um, we see that in other areas when it comes to television specifically. And so, for example, we need to achieve regional diversity. So Ofcom defines what regional diversity is um, and then sets that standard, sets the amount that the BBC and Channel 4 needs to achieve. And then BBC and Channel 4 have to achieve it with regards to their licenses, their respective licenses and charter. You know, so previous to that, um, the BBC used to go out um, and try and set up productions and more productions outside of London, but without a clear definition and without um, Ofcom, you found that those efforts, even with the best of intentions, they would eventually start to wither on the vine and productions would start to go back to to London. That doesn't mean that the definition doesn't need to be dynamic. So again, using the regional diversity definition, Ofcom came up with a definition in 2007, I think it was, and progress was definitely made. But you also saw how people um, were able to get around some of those definitions. And so... Ofcom needs to be dynamic, and Ofcom was dynamic. And so what it did is that it um, consulted on what the new definition should be. And I think um, it's January now, January the 19th. So I think the new definition is, has actually been implemented now. I knew it was going to be implemented in January. I think the new definition has been implemented. And I'm sure that's going to work for a while. And then companies will see ways in which to possibly get around some of those definitions. And then it will have to be dynamic again. So I don't think that we'll be able to come up with one simple definition for diversity and it will be the right definition forevermore. It will have to be dynamic, but we do need a third party to define what diversity is. Otherwise, companies will just set their own homework and they will always pass. You mentioned like enforcement, monitoring, regulation. I guess that's one you know, part of the, uh, what's called the overall uh, Henry plan. And the rest of the book, uh, or the kind of the other side um, of, of the book, as well as you know, sort of laying out the problem and, and the issues, talks through some of the ways that might be effective. And um, one part of that is, as you've said, you know, you know, kind of getting some proper oversight. But the other part, I guess, is is kind of setting uh, incentives. You know, almost kind of 
saying to companies, broadcasters, to the industry, you know, it's not just a matter of we want to, you know, kind of crack down on you and tell you, you know, how badly you're doing. Um, but also, you know, to give you uh, a sense of there's um, a lot to be sort of gained, you know, and, and a sort of a world to win um, through positive changes for diversity. So could you say a bit about the Henry plan? I mean, there's a full chapter on, you know, kind of things like like tax breaks, but it'd be good to hear about, um, I guess, the kind of the overall um, vision for um, how we can fix diversity in telly and, 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 and other parts of cultural industries. Okay. Funnily enough, um, and I don't think this comes across or might not come across as much as I want in the book, it's less thinking, because sometimes when people talk about policies, they talk about it in terms of sticks and, and carrots. You know, So they talk about regulation and then offering an incentive for, for companies to, to, do better di- to have better diversity. And I think what Lenny and I have tried to do with regards to um, the Henry Plan, which I'll go to in a minute, is change the economic structure and change the economic environment that companies are working in so that they will naturally want to increase diversity, that they will, to maximise their profits, even in the short run, they will realise why diversity works for them. And so markets are not, um, economic markets are not products of of nature, they are man-made. And they are made by government, they're made by other people, they're made by um, regulators. And so what we're saying is, and this gets my full economic geek on, um, and the book is far more accessible than this, so so please don't take my um, economic um, uh, answer as maybe detracting people from buying the book. But what, what we're saying is that you need to actually set an economic environment. Right? The government needs to set that economic environment. Um, the regulator needs to set that economic environment. And there are lots of different ways in which you can do that. And so one obvious way in which you do it is through tax regimes. You know, So depending on your tax policies, that sets the economic environment as to whether somebody's business activities are profitable or not profitable. And so if you set um, diversity tax breaks or set your tax breaks so that people are either rewarded or penalised, but they can actually see how it might affect their bottom line um, if they implement diversity policies or achieve certain diversity goals, then it's less about thinking about it in terms of diversity and thinking about how do you actually maximise um, your profits or minimise your, um, your taxes. You know? So that would be a very obvious way. You know, other ways in terms of we've, with the Henry plan, we talked about um, ring fencing funds. So you have that um, throughout the television industry. So what you have right now is that you've got ring fence funds for different genres. The BBC and Channel 4 are told by the regulator how much they need to spend on certain genres, for example. You know, so um, the, the BBC needs to spend um, a minimum amount on children's programs. It also needs to broadcast a minimum number of hours of current affairs programs. It needs to um, broadcast a minimum amount of high-end drama, for example. 
Now, these things aren't just set out um, by accident. They're set out to actually encourage um, a lively and a healthy media environment for the UK. Right? And so similarly, if you ring fence funds for diversity, if you ring fence funds for diverse productions, that too will encourage um, diverse productions to be made. It's no different from the amount of um, uh, the set minimum requirements that broadcasters need to do um, for different genres, nor is it any different from the set number of hours and the minimum amount of spend that broadcasters need to do for, or public service broadcasters need to do for out of London um, broadcasts, for example. You know, so it's setting a economic environment which will then lead companies to make better decisions. That makes There's sense. Been, yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's perfect. I, I was going to say that there's loads of... It, it's funny you mentioning kind of getting your your economic geek on but uh, there's loads of like quite personal reflections in the book about what it's like to campaign what it's like to you know try and kind of negotiate um or make uh, representations in parliament and, and and you know it gives a real uh, kind of personal flavor of of doing um this you know kind of long-standing long-term campaigning and creating um a diversity manifesto in um in telly um, and, and I think you're right as well. You know, uh, people shouldn't be worried uh, by the idea of a, you know, a discussion about the kind of uh, the economic or business landscape and incentives and all this uh, kind of stuff, because there is also a very um, personal story uh, going on in, in, in the book. And, and it's that kind of personal story uh, that, that we might finish on, actually. Um, and what, one of the things that was um, in, in incredibly sort of interesting from an, an academic geek point of view is the way that you've tried to um, maybe institutionalize a lot of the uh, learning that's gone on over, over the course of the uh, campaigning work and the creation of the manifesto in this new center at Birmingham City University. Um, so as, as a kind of a way to begin to wrap up, could you say a bit about that that project and, and uh, maybe, you know, your sort of like, um, I guess, sort of personal role uh, in the creation of a new academic centre. Yeah, sure. So, gone. I think back to your your first question. You know, we asked why did we write the book. One of the reasons that we wrote the book is that we realised that we were learning as we went, and we were making mistakes. And we've learned from those mistakes, which is great. But we don't want other people making those same mistakes. Right? And there's a real problem when it comes to diversity of people not learning from their mistakes and also people not building on, on success. So invariably, I will come up with an idea which I think is an absolutely brilliant idea for increasing diversity. And I'll find somebody who was working in television 10 years before me and they'll say, oh, that sounds just like this idea that... BBC tried out and it worked for a bit and then there was a change in management at the top and then so it just withered on the vine, you know, and we're not learning from our successes, you know, and similarly, you know, we're also, what is amazing is the way that we're not learning from academic work either. So this was really brought home to me when I was talking to a BBC executive 
And they were telling me that they're rolling out. The BBC at that point was thinking of rolling out the Rooney Rule. The Rooney Rule is where you would have one person from an underrepresented group um, on to be interviewed. If you're interviewing six people, one of them has to be from an underrepresented group, has to be from an ethnic minority or might have to be a woman, depending on how they're implementing the rule. Right? And the BBC executive who told me this was very excited about it. And if you actually look at the academic work around it, the Rooney rule is questionable whether it works at best. And there's a lot of um, academic work which shows that it might actually have the opposite effect. It might actually reduce diversity for issues of moral licensing, you know. And so what I realized, and I've, this is just the one BBC exec example, but it's happened time and time again, is that the people implementing these policies are not, they're busy, they're busy people, they're busy making programs, they're busy doing other things. And so they're often not keeping abreast of all the really interesting academic developments which are being done, all the research which is being done on how to increase diversity. So that's my very long-winded way of saying that's why Lenny and I got together, we spoke to um, other academics as well, and we set up the Lenny Henry Centre for Media Diversity um, based at Birmingham City University. And the idea of that is to capture the institutional memory, which is constantly being lost, capture um, what's working so that we can build on it, capture what's not working so we don't repeat it, publishing um, those papers so that we can actually give that to um, and make sure that people who are implementing policy are aware of that, but also making sure that we look at the academic work which is being done and disseminating that to the policymakers who matter and showing how they could be used in shaping their policies. So to that end, um, just two months ago, I think it was, we had um, we published our first journal, and it was a the journal is less of an academic journal. Um, it's a hybrid, so that we have practitioners writing pieces, but then we also have academics um, writing writing pieces as well. So it will either fall between um, uh, you know two stools and not be good enough for the practitioners and not be um, uh, you know, rigorous enough for the academics, but we're hoping it will um, be able to bridge that gap so that um, academics can learn from practitioners and more importantly, or well not more importantly, there shows my bias, but importantly, um, practitioners can learn from, from the academic research which is being done. I look forward to seeing more of it, the, uh, the book wraps up with the eight points of the manifesto and, and crucially uh, it wraps up with, with a kind of a call uh, that we should we, we should all kind of get to work um, and I think um, that'll be you know really kind of essential um, as, as we move forward um, especially um, given as you outline in the book you know the, the sort of the range of opportunities as much as the um, the kind of the problems with what's been been tried before. Yeah, we are the we are the ninety six point nine percent. You know, we in, once you look at regional diversity, and that's not even looking at class. Once you start looking at at class diversity, you know, we are the ninety eight or maybe even the ninety nine percent 
you know, it's an all-out interest for better representation, you know, to create a better and fairer society.